This is Car Expert. If he thinks that autonomy isn't the sexy subject that it once was, that carries a lot of weight considering who Volvo is. Single motor versions of the Polestar 2 are going to be switching from front wheel drive to rear wheel drive. BMW always tries to dial in a little bit of engagement and you know funkiness to it. The limousine that you also want to drive as well as be driven in, I think they've really done a good job with achieving that here. Hello to you, Mike Costello. Hello to you, Mandy Turner. And hello, James Wong. Hello, Mandy Turner and Mike Costello. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, we're going to start this. (laughs) Uh, Now, we always encourage you to send us an email to podcast at carexpert.com.au, and that's exactly what Mike has done uh, this week. He said, hi, guys, love the site and the crew. Last week on the podcast at the end, Mandy asked what everyone was testing this week, and one of the cars was a Range Rover Evoque Air GV. Yesterday, when I listened to the latest podcast, nothing was mentioned about the Evoque for current or upcoming tests. I was really hanging out for this test. What happened? Thanks, and keep up the great work. Mike. Um, Joe, you're laughing. Please explain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mike, I love the enthusiasm, first of all, and it's great that you're so interested and a keen listener of the podcast. Um, I Honestly, the reason it wasn't mentioned last week is because I'd barely finished driving it and I was probably out doing something else. So, you know, it takes a little bit of time to put these reviews together. Most of us are driving at least one, sometimes two cars a week. Last week I drove I think three or four because I was on two launches so um, you know it takes a little bit of time to gather your thoughts you know take right you put your notes down on on paper and everything but you're just in luck we're going to be talking about it today so I'm really excited to um, you know answer any questions uh, that anyone has and hopefully um, satisfy his thirst for all the info on the Range Rover plug-in hybrid. (laughs) Also another thing worth noting some cars do come with an embargo as well especially if it's like you know off the back of a launch or something like that so um, that could be another reason why we don't talk about a car. Uh, you mentioned a couple of weeks ago uh, Drive Against Depression in Melbourne, uh, a driving event coming up, but that's this weekend, isn't it? Yeah, it's this Sunday. So um, we're, we're going from Geelong to Torquay, but um, in typical DAD fashion, it'll be the prettiest, most scenic route between <laughs> Geelong and Torquay. So I think we're starting from Geelong at about 8 o'clock or 8.30 in the morning. So if you're on uh, my side of town, which is the east side of the city, you'd be prepared for a bit of a trip over to the other side. But um, I'm really excited to um, see the crew again. It's been a little while since we had our last day and uh, it's always good to get people together and the cause is great. So for those who aren't familiar with the charity, um, we've we've plugged it a couple of times on the podcast and it's all about, you know, um, encouraging and normalizing the conversation around mental health, but through a shared love of cars, motoring, driving and all things in between. And so um, it was it was really founded on on that basis as well. So the, the founder, um, Adam Davis, who, who works in the industry, basically, you know, he was he's been going he's had his own um, struggles with mental health. And one way he got through it was one time he just got in a car with a few friends and went for a drive and was able to really open up and, and felt like it really helped him and and that's something that I I know a lot of people that support the charity um, past and present have been able to do as well so even if you just come along for the drive and you're not you're you're in a you're in a really great place it's always good to support the cause Um, come along meet people um, see some of the cars and and have have conversations and and make new friends and that's something that I've really appreciated about the organization for the past however many years I've been supporting it I think I'm coming up to like five or six years now so um, yeah it's great Awesome. What car are you taking? I think we're going to take my Golf. Um, oh, no. 
nice. Which is, yeah, I don't think a Jeep Grand Cherokee is going to be the best car for that job. And please don't ask Mandy for a review on it next week because I won't have had my thoughts yet. <laughs> but, um, for, for, for more information on the organization and this week's drive, just head to driveagainstdepression.com.au. Um, there's an event page where you can register for the event so that the guys know that you're coming because <laughs> that's always a good help because sometimes we get 40 to 50 cars now, which is quite a lot of logistics. Um, so, yeah, and you can also find out more about the charity and donate if you are um, feeling generous. So um, thanks for supporting that and, yeah. Are there any other ones throughout Australia or is it just based in Melbourne? It's mainly Melbourne based at the moment, but um, I think one of the strategies this year is they're going to open it up so that people who really want to um, support the charity and the cause can actually do their own regional things. So, for example, if you're living in another state, um, you can basically host an event that supports the charity and, and, you know, has all the branding and the marketing around it. Um, and then you can also, you know, enlist your own drive route planner or, you know, get support from the organization. So, you know, it's, it is still fairly Melbourne based in terms of the events at the moment, but it's, it's definitely something that's going to expand because there has been a lot of interest. I've received a lot of messages about it from people that live interstate. Um, and I know Sarah, one of the founders, um, has, has had the same. So it's something that they're definitely looking into and um, hopefully we'll see it um, proliferate across the, across the country, which will be awesome. To talk about this week's car news, welcoming back Jack Quick. Hello. Hey there, Mandy. How are you? Very good. Uh, good to have you back for for the uh, first episode for you for 2023. Thank you. Um, now, we're going to start off with uh, some pretty cool news, actually. Uh, Chevrolet Corvette E-Ray V8 Hybrid is coming to Australia. This is exciting. It is very exciting. Yeah, coming to Australia, those nice words that we don't hear very often, I suppose. So, yeah, as you mentioned, Mandy, um, GMSV, which is kind of the Australian branch of General Motors, has confirmed the Corvette E-Ray is coming to Australia. Um, at this stage, we don't know when it will arrive, and we also don't know how, how much it will cost. So, there are a few big things we don't know yet. Um, one thing to note as well, GMSV still hasn't locked in a local timing uh, for the Corvette Z06, so the, the hypo version of the Corvette. Yeah, so, we're still waiting to hear a lot of information, but we do know it's coming. So, um, getting back to the Corvette E-Ray, it's the first time a Corvette uh, is going to be coming with all-wheel drive, and it's also the first with a hybrid powertrain. Very, very cool. So, um, the the Corvette E-Ray is powered by a mid-mounted 6.2-litre V8, thankfully, um, producing 369 kilowatts of power and 637 uh, newton metres of torque that drives the rear wheels exclusively. Uh, this is mated with uh, an electric motor um, producing 120 kilowatts and 165 newton meters that drives the front wheels exclusively. That's how they get the, the all-wheel drive. Um, this also comes with a, a small 1.2 kilowatt hour lithium ion battery pack for regen and all that kind of fun stuff to make the electric motor go. Um, total system outputs for the Corvette E-Ray are 488 kilowatts with it able to do um, the 0 to 60 mile per hour sprint in a crazy 2.5 seconds. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it technically makes it the fastest production Corvette ever. 
Um, there is a downside though, because the Corvette E-Ray weighs in at 1,712 kilos in coupe form and 1,749 kilos in convertible form. This is um, up to roughly 185 kilograms more than the other Corvette variants, just to note. It's um, actually not bad th- when you think about it, though. No, not too bad when you think that it's like all-wheel drive. It has a yeah. high-voltage battery, but like, and it's quick. <laughs> mm, that's incredible. But yeah, uh, love to know, guys. What are your thoughts on the Corvette E-Ray? Um, yeah, I think it looks amazing. And um, I think it's really cool that uh, General Motors has managed to keep the Corvette current, not just in terms of like the design and um, making it a a rear engine car like some uh, exotic supercars, but also the fact that they've managed to put in a form of electrification without, you know, completely undoing the the enthusiast side of it. Um, I feel like the we're all sort of aligned on this, and I know um, Mike did a really cool opinion piece about how the Corvette's done hybridization the right way. Um, <laughs> I think it looks great. The, the numbers are epic. Um, I'm sure that in terms in normal driving, there'll be tangible fuel savings given how powerful and thirsty American V8s tend to be. Um, and I and looking at the price difference in the US, it's around the same price as the Z06. So once we know pricing for the Z06 in Australia, I guess you can sort of assume that the hybrid would be priced around that same point. So I think that it's like, it just looks really cool. And I remember when we first saw the leaks and heard whispers of this variant coming, um, I thought I was really excited to see that because, you know, for me, I like the the idea of something that looks as cool as that. And then having uh, an electrified futuristic powertrain sort of adds to the coolness of it because I'm a little bit of a tech nerd with it when it comes to cars. It was sort of like when I drove the, the Lexus LC for the first time and even though everyone panned the hybrid for being boring compared to the V8, like sure, the V8 is really cool, but I thought the hybrid was kind of cool in terms of how it fit with the the futuristic look of that car and also its, um, its day-to-day benefits in terms of the technology. So super excited for this car. Hopefully we um, see them soon in Australia. So GMSV, let us know, please. We'd like to, we want to know, we want to see one in the office. We want to drive it and, you know, all the, all the things. Um, so yeah, I'm super excited for it. And I think they've done a really cool job. As um, Jawa just mentioned, uh, Mike, uh, you just wrote an opinion piece on how Corvette has done electrification well. So no doubt you're a fan of this one as well. Yeah, I am. I think, you know, I, I look at the way AMG has gone about hybridising the C63 and I think to myself, I understand the necessity for it. But it seems to me that GM has better understood its customers and it's realised that at niche levels, uh, the, the difference that a V8 via four-cylinder makes to the total emissions is pretty minimal. Um, these are niche performance cars, and I really think that as, as a bridging technology goes, as we move in towards full electric supercars, this is a way to kind of retain what people love about the Corvette while incrementally improving on certain areas and adding things that were never previously there, like all-wheel drive. So I think it's one of the better executions, obviously, waiting to drive it. But overall, um, this is kind of exactly what I was hoping that Chevy would do with it. Mm. Very nice indeed. Cannot wait to get it here. Now, we've uh, got some updates for the 2024 Polestar 2, Jack. Yes, we have very big news. Um, very interesting news, actually, for a, an electric vehicle. But single motor versions of the Polestar 2 are gonna, uh, going to be switching from front-wheel drive to rear-wheel drive. 
which is interesting. Sounds, yeah, it goes around super, the other way, isn't it? Yeah, it's super <laughs> cool. Um, this follows a, a very similar uh, switch that happened with the Volvo XC40 and C40 Recharge models. Um, just to note, the the Pulsar 2 is built on the same platform as these two Volvo models, and it's also built in the same Chinese factory. So it's safe to assume that this was coming, uh, that the Volvo announcement was last week, and um, super cool that they're switching to, to rear-wheel uh, drive bias. Um, as I mentioned in that story, um, the ordering for the 2024 Polestar 2, from memory, I think it's opening in the second quarter of this year with uh, expected deliveries uh, in the third quarter. So it's not too far away. Um, but as I mean, uh, as I should say, um, this rear-wheel drive swap isn't the only change. Um it also gets uh, new batteries, more power and range. Uh, also gets uh, altered exterior styling and more standard features. Um, so I'll go back to the to the single motor variants. They are now powered uh, by a rear-mounted electric motor producing up to 220 kilowatts of power and 490 newton meters of torque. This is up uh, 30 kilowatts and 160 newton meters uh, more than the pre-update model. Uh, whereas dual motor variants are now rear biased and produce up to 350 kilowatts of power and seven, uh, 740 uh, newton meters of torque. Um, interesting point to make with this new uh, dual motor powertrain is the front motor can now disconnect uh, for to save range. So hopefully we'll see a better uh, energy consumption and more range, which I'll get to right now, because um, the standard range single motor uh, now comes with an LG Chem sourced 69 kilowatt hour lithium ion battery. And range is now uh, 518 kilometers, according to WLTP uh, testing, which is an increase of, I just had it here, increase of around um, 80 kilometers from memory. Uh, whereas the rest of the, the Pulsar 2 range now comes with uh, a cattle sourced um, 82 kilowatt hour, uh, kilowatt, sorry, uh, uh, lithium ion battery. And then range for the rest of the range is up to 635 Ks, um, which depending on the variant, uh, sees increases of up to 100 K. So 100 K is more range than the 2023 model, which I think is really cool and yeah. not something that I'd expect. Um, uh, in addition to all these changes, uh, on the outside, there's this new smart zone grill, <laughs> uh, which houses, which is kind of like a, a different version of the blanked out grill. It looks very glass-like. It's inspired by the Polestar 3, if you haven't already seen that, and it houses the, the front-facing camera and also the radar. Um, lastly, um, uh, as I mentioned, the Pulsar 2 2024 model year update gets a whole range of new features. And the highlights of that are new safety features standard across the range include uh, blind spot monitoring and rear cross traffic alert. Um, the, the, these features in particular were previously locked behind option packs, which isn't very fun. But now they're standard across the range, which is really nice to see. Um, but I want to know, guys, are you surprised by this update? especially with the switch to rear-wheel drive. I think this is an incredibly interesting sort of, I guess, 
maybe side effect of the the rollout of electrification where you know once upon a time if you wanted to make a front wheel drive car a transverse car into a rear wheel drive car it would have required all manner of mechanical changes whereas now you've really just got to move the motor to the back axle like it's a much simpler way to go about it and so clearly Polestar has had a look at its competitor set and realized that there were packaging and performance benefits to be had and it was able to sort of execute that really quickly which you could never have done before you couldn't you couldn't make a Golf R rear-wheel drive that easily, basically, as a midlife update. So, yeah, I think it's a really smart move from Polestar. I think it's going to make that vehicle more desirable to the people that want to buy a performance electric sedan. I think rear-wheel drive and all-wheel drive is a better bet. All the rest of its competitors have that. And so it's a smart move, and it's a really interesting move that bodes uh, the sort of things we can expect to see from the electrified future. You agree, Jay yeah, I think so too. And unlike the others I've already touched on, we've seen that uh, most dedicated electric vehicles have sort of seen the return of rear-wheel drive in more pedestrian or consumer-focused vehicles rather than the enthusiast performancey side of things. And, you know, when you look at the the C40, XC40 and Polestar 2's competitor set, a lot of them offer a rear-wheel drive option or at least some form of rear-wheel bias. So you look at, you know, Tesla Model 3, um, the, the Volkswagen Group MEB stuff is all rear-wheel drive biased. Um, and so it makes sense. And, and given that this also comes with packaging and efficiency gains, like why not? So I'm really excited to actually drive them because um, I recently stepped out of a, a Polestar to a long-range dual motor um, or constantly forgetting the names of all the different variants because it's like a big <laughs> mumbo-jumbo of things. But I was I was quite impressed with how that drove. But they, with the twin motors, it was um, – and and there were identical outputs on each axle and everything. I'd be, I'd be really interested to feel if that makes a difference when you get that kind of – uh, variant with this sort of layout. So it, I think it's really cool and it's a cool thing to have on paper, I guess. You've got, you can get a, an, an XC40 or Polestar, well, the Polestar 2 obviously does not for an, an, an internal combustion option, but, you know, you can get one with a petrol front-wheel drive or all-wheel drive, or you can get the electric one, which is even more fun because it's rear-wheel drive now. So I think that's really cool and, and it shows the, um, the packaging benefits of having an electric vehicle platform of sorts because you can sort of muck around with all how things are positioned and how they work. So keen to see these come down here soon. Yeah. Well, we're also very keen, uh, this is transitioning to our next story, uh, an, an Australian company has signed a billion-dollar deal, Jack, to convert some uh, Toyotas to electric. Yeah, Mandy, that's right. So, yeah, Australian truck maker um, SEA Electric, which you might have heard before, as you mentioned, has signed a billion-dollar deal with MEV Co. to convert convert 8,500 Toyota Hiluxes and Land Cruisers for the mining industry by 2028. Um, So, apparently, more than half of the 2023 allocation of these um, Australian-developed workhorses have been pre-sold, and then there are, uh, there are already demonstrator models in uh, Melbourne, Sydney, and Perth. So uh, the way this works really is these uh, converted diesel utes um, will run SEA Electric's proprietary uh, SEA Drive EV power system. Um, 
But this stage is unclear where the vehicles will be sourced. We don't know whether there'll be new Toyota Hiluxes and Land Cruisers or whether there'll be old models. It's not really clear at this stage yet, but it's this huge billion-dollar deal that's happening. Um, so these uh, converted utes uh, are available in 4.2, uh, sorry, 4x2 and 4x4 configurations, and an 88-kilowatt-hour battery uh, offers up to 380 k's of range, and there's also... Uh, a 60 kilowatt hour battery option that offers up to 260 k's of range. But it's worth noting, um, this isn't the only deal uh, like this where a company is uh, converting uh, Hiluxes, as an example, into an EV. Uh, as li late last year, um, RO EV announced its EV fleet program, um, which allows post-2016 Toyota Hilux and Ford Ranger Utes uh, to get converted into uh, pure electric. So I think it's um, very exciting to be seeing what's happening in this realm. Um, it's not something that I would personally expect, but it, I obviously understand it has all of its benefits of transitioning into to, to an, a, a diesel ute into EV, especially when you're underground or something like that. But um, do you think this will have uh, any benefit to the mining uh, companies? It's a really interesting one, Jack. Um, what surprised me about this deal, and, and I've been trying to get my head around this deal for a while now, is obviously the scale is enormous, 8,500. How are they going to get that many Hiluxes? Because SEA Electric has an agreement with Toyota's sister brand Hino to bring in some Hino trucks as like a sort of half knockdown CKD job where they convert the diesels into electrics. But they're not used, they're new, and they're converted in Australia at a factory line. Um, now, SEA has said that the Hiluxes it converts are, are once again going to be new Hiluxes. They're not going to be used mine vehicles where they pull the smelly old diesel out and replace it. I just don't understand how they're going to get hold of 8,500 Hiluxes, considering that punters are waiting to get hold of Hiluxes. And when I asked Toyota this question, they didn't have any real answer. They didn't really even acknowledge that they were aware of the deal. And so wow. I don't really know how the rubber's going to make the road here. I'm not doubting it. SCA Electric is a major company. Mevco is a major company. These are all well-established brands that have got runs on the board. So I'm not saying it's not going to happen. There's just a lot of questions yet to be answered as to how it's going to manifest. In terms of the benefits of electric utes, I mean, clearly on mine sites, there are upsides and downsides. The downsides are probably well, definitely less range, um, higher in, uh, in, uh, initial price. And then the TCO benefits, the total cost of ownership benefits are yielded over a long period of time and mines tend to churn through cars pretty quick. They destroy cars very quickly. So whether the actual sums are going to add up, I'm not so sure. Um, when you throw in things like solar arrays and, you know, the need to reduce NOx particulates underground, et cetera, et cetera, there's a lot of variables here. Clearly some mines want it because otherwise this MOU wouldn't have been signed, but there's a lot more questions to be addressed before uh, I would be calling this any kind of revolutionary deal. Hmm. Good idea, Jaywo. <laughs> yeah, pretty much mo echo Moko's thoughts. That was a bit of a tongue twister. Um, and while there are a lot of questions raised, I think it's really cool to see such a big deal go into an Australian company, which is great for local industry and all that kind of stuff. So given it's a sort of a developing story, we need to we're still waiting for a lot of answers to some of our questions. It's sort of hard to tell at this point whether, you know, well, it's a great idea um, if they can't do it. But at least the idea is there. And um, yeah, any support to local industry is always a good thing. Absolutely. And uh, our last story here, Jack, used car prices are still on the decline. 
Yeah, so the latest uh, Moody's analytic report uh, for used vehicle pricing uh, found that used car prices have decreased for seven successive months. Um, This month is also the first year on year uh, decline since May 2020, so when COVID hit more or less. Uh, The report uh, predicts uh, used car prices will continue returning to earth this year as new car supply improves and demand weakens on the back of higher borrowing costs and inflation. Um, On the supply side, uh, vehicle production in Japan was 35% above uh, 2021 levels uh, in October last year and motor car imports uh, grew in Q3 uh, last year, uh, year on year. Uh, The report also mentions China is moving away from its zero COVID policy, um, which will see a positive development in the end uh, for supply chains uh, once the the initial uh, COVID outbreak that's inevitable once uh, production starts there full time again uh, subsides. It's obviously obviously going to be good in the end for supply chains. Um, But what are your thoughts, guys? Do you think we'll see this trend continuing where uh, used car prices will go down to normality? The two major factors that were driving up the cost of used cars were shortages of new vehicles and were uh, really high borrowing power in households, uh, low interest rates, strong economy, etc. We're heading into a a weakening GDP situation, probably not recession, but close to it. Wage growth is uh, under CPI, so interest rates are going up, borrowing power is reduced and supply lines are freeing up. So all the factors that were keeping used car prices artificially high are being steadily removed, um, which you know suggests that we're going to see significant reductions. But we're also not going to get back to the place that used car prices were before COVID. They're still 50% higher than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, yes, they're lower than they were last year, but... Relatively speaking, um, proportionate to incomes, used car prices are still quite high. Um, And I don't see us getting back to those salad days of 2018 where you could pick cars up for a song. I think, you know, you're going to see more OEMs being a bit cautious with how many new cars they send here, given the weakening global economic situation. So I think um, there'll be a reduction, but but not the kind of reduction that perhaps we're hoping for, maybe 10 or 15% for the rest of the year and then some stabilisation next. Um, That being said, there'll be some models where prices are going to remain sky high for a while yet, things like land cruisers where there's not a lot of competition, um, there's not a lot of incentive for prices to come down. So more, I guess, uh, inelastic vehicles like that won't be as affected, but mainstream cars, I think we'll start to see some reductions, which is a very good thing for affordability and safety of, of, of people on the roads. Have you seen your Golf GTI um, hold its value, j You've still got it, don't you? Yeah, I do. I've had it for three years now. I have noticed that whenever I sort of do a valuation on any of the classified sites, it tends to be uh, – it comes back with a figure that's more than what I paid for it. So if that's a sign of things, if that's a sign of things, I guess, you know, it's still a seller's market. Um, just to build upon what's already been said, I think that it's, it's really incredible to me how much – um, people are having to pay for used cars at the more affordable end of the scale. You know, I, as as journos and people that work in the industry, we have a lot of friends, family, contacts that, you know, come to us for advice. And sometimes I'm quite shocked when someone is sort of telling me what budget they're working with and what kind of vehicle they want. And you go jump on um, the classifieds to find something that suits the description. And some of the 
like ridiculous pricing that I'm still seeing on, you know, cars that are five years old or even older and they're almost being sold for what they were new with very high mileage, not necessarily great condition. So even though the prices are coming down, which is obviously a great thing, they're coming off a very high base. And so there's still some time yet before, you know, we I, I almost say to people now, if you can afford to buy a new car, I would say just go get a new one because a lot of these cars that are on the market are out of warranty, but you're paying new car prices. So what's the point? Um, and that's probably why we're seeing brands like MG do so well at the moment because for the price of a five or six-year-old Corolla or something, you can get a brand new MG3 um, that's covered by warranty and has new you know, new infotainment with Apple CarPlay, which is very desirable for you know the entry point of the market. And we're sort of seeing that trend across the board with, with several different makes. So good to see them coming down but there's still a bit of a way to go this is sort of why my parents bought a a brand new car for the very first time dad was always against it like not buy used car you let the 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 first owner take all the brunt of um, losing all the money but they they bought a kia serato a couple of years ago when the prices were so high for used cars you get the seven-year warranty with it as well it was it was a no-brainer so i sort of encouraged them to do it it was it was good good decision (laughs) that wraps up news thank you so much jack quick Thanks, Mandy. The best car to drive, the best car to be driven in. That's what JY wrote, and that's what BMW thinks of its new 7 Series. Um, is it true, uh, JY, I'm, I, no doubt you'll be answering this a little later on in the review, seeing as you've actually <laughs> driven it, you've just come back from the launch. Um, yes. But first, um, let's just talk about the details. Uh, it's the first electric 7 Series. Yeah, so the seventh generation 7 Series, so the seventh of the seven, has just arrived in <laughs> Australia. Um, it's starting off with two variants at launch, a 740i and an i7 xDrive 60. Um, and the i7 is the first time that we've seen an all-electric version of the 7 Series. So the previous generation um, introduced plug-in hybrid technology, and now this seventh generation has gone one step further. It starts around the $270,000 mark, which is on a little bit on the premium side of this segment, but um, what, what BMW has done is that now the X, the I, 7 Series and the i7 uh, are only available in one body length. So historically, we've, we've seen most brands do a standard and a long wheelbase version of these flagship limousines and um, rivals like the Mercedes-Benz S-Class and the Audi A8 continue to do this. Um, but this new 7 Series is actually longer both in wheelbase and length than the old long wheelbase 7 Series. So it's up by you know a pretty decent almost 200 millimeters in both measurements, which is quite a substantial um, you know growth spurt and the car itself now measures almost like 5.4 meters long so this thing is massive and it's very upright very bluff um, monolithic styling so they've they've really drawn upon uh, Rolls-Royce which is part of the BMW group incidentally and the the 7 series has long shared um, its genetics with the Rolls-Royce Ghost so you you could sort of see some links there and even just in from looking at it you can sort of see that there's some family ties there so in terms of the the electrification side of things the the petrol 740i is a mild hybrid and it's it's a similar engine to the one that you'll see in some other bmw products namely the m40i versions of like you know 3 series x3 um and so it's got a 48 volt mild hybrid system about 280 kilowatts and then when you jump up to the i7 uh, x drive 60 which is about 300 grand or about the same price as the old um 750i L X Drive. <laughs> There's a lot of numbers and letters that I've got to work with here. Um, you've got uh, a car that's you know sort of in line with those high spec old V8s, but now it's all electric and you know has 400 kilowatts, which is insane. Wow. 
Yeah. So um, it's it's big on tech. And I think um, the, the new S-Class was sort of touted as this massive tech masterpiece, as is usually the case with the S-Class. Um, and I think BMW is really trying to draw upon um, its own tech catalog and, and really taking the fight to it. So it's got some really cool screens in there, um, heaps of driver assist tech. Um, now there's like a full lounge seating option, which you can get on both cars that gives you like a theater style recliner. And there's a 30 inch 8K resolution resolution display in the back, um, a 35-speaker sound system with four-dimensional technology. So it basically shakes the car and makes you feel like you're in the actual thing that you're watching. There were some really, really cool things in there. Oh, there's even Swarovski crystals in the headlights. Oh. So you name it, this car probably has it. The only thing it doesn't have is a Starlight headliner, and that's probably because Rolls-Royce said there's absolutely no way you're taking that off us. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like they've copyrighted it, isn't it? Pretty much. <laughs> um, now, let's talk about the elephant in the room. It- What's the styling and design like in person? Uh, not an elephant; it's more of a pig. But um, that, the, the big nose—the big nose—is quite a thing to look at. I—I'll be the first to admit I haven't been a fan of um, BMW's latest design language. The the kidney grills I feel like have been quite classic and streamlined and very attractive in previous generations. But this l- new wave of BMWs that basically have buck teeth at the front. Uh, don't particularly present well in launch images, but I will say there is something about the new 7 Series when you see it in person that's um, quite special. It really is, is – it's very distinctive. I, I think it will be very dependent on how you spec it. The cars that we had on the launch, a few of them were finished either in a grayish black or like a, a frozen um, satin black, which is almost like a matte finish. I personally didn't like those ones that much, but I also did drive an i7 that was in this like – champagne silver um, with more bright work and I felt like that suited it more well. At the end of the day, these cars are quite blingy. So I think mm-hmm. when you when you let it be blingy and, and, and sort of the whole package sort of works together in context, I think it works. Um, and it's a very attractive car from the inside, partly because you don't have to look at the front. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get a chance to be driven from the back seat at all? I did. So the drive program was set up into four legs. Well, two legs with with a stopover in each. And in each time you did, when you did the driver swap, you'd also swap variants. So in both cases, um, the, me, myself and the journalist that I shared the car with, who was um, from New Zealand, we basically just swapped from the front to the back, and then you know utilized all the back seat tech. There's little touch screens in the doors um, that allow you to adjust the seats or the screens or um, the ventilation. So it's it's almost like being in like a business class seat in an airline. Which which is I, I drew that link a few times in the in the review, um, and you know you've got everything at your fingertips. You can put up the blinds, you can recline your seat, you can have ventilation. You've got your own wireless phone charger there that actually works. That's something that I found lately with a lot of cars. The wireless phone chargers don't always work. This one works and it works quickly. Um, and there's basically every amenity, and you can sort of spec it up um, as you as you prefer because the ba- the base package doesn't give you like the full recliner thing, the full recliner setup and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, you can spec it up to that level or, or keep it fairly standard. Um, in terms of, you know, space, it's it's pretty good, but it wasn't quite as spacious as I would have expected for a vehicle of that size and its positioning within the lineup. You know, I remember the first time I ever sat in a Holden Caprice um, that a, a friend's dad was using as a, as a driver car. And I remember just sitting in the back even as an adult, and um, being like, wow, it literally, there's a suburb separating me from the front row. I didn't quite feel that with the 7 Series, and I don't know whether that's 
down to having to push the the back seats a little bit forward so you can allow for the reclining function and things like that because it'd be certain packaging difficulties with that. Um, but, you know, it didn't quite – luxury – space is an element of luxury in my opinion, as is, you know, refinement and things like that. So you can dress it up and cover it in leather, but if it's a bit noisy or, you know, you don't feel like you're acres away from the next person, that's something that I feel like deserves a little bit of a knock. The refinement's great. Um, it's very, very quiet at speed. Um, there's, like, no wind noise at all, whether you're in the front or the back. Um, it's on run flat tires, so you get a really little hint of the road surface in the cabin, but it's far from unrefined. Um, and the ride – um, was it actually depends on the variant. So the 740 seems a little bit uh, sharper, and, and when I sh- when I say sharper, I mean it's a little bit firmer. Sort of befits the more sporting um, driver's car uh, pitch that that particular variant goes for. Whereas I think the extra weight of the batteries and electric motors in the i7, which is 2.6 tons, mind you, um, has a bit more of a wafty, comfortable um, character to it. And both cars ride on air suspension. You know, it's got active anti-roll technology and rear wheel steering. So it's very, very maneuverable. Um, and, but it also doesn't make you sick at low speeds. I found with some rear wheel steering systems, it almost kicks the back out and feels like it's fishtailing or whatever, but it does it so violently that, you know, you feel a little bit car sick. Whereas this one was was really, really good. Um, and the, the anti-roll technology meant that despite being such a big car, it handled quite well and didn't feel like you're wallowing about. So sort of really plays to that whole BMW ultimate driving machine thing and that whole best car to drive. And, you know, it's not necessarily – I don't know if BMW is trying to say it's the best driving car in the world because I think Porsche and a couple of other brands might have something to say about that. <laughs> I think it's more relative to the segment that it competes in. You know, you have yeah. an S, you have S-classes and Rolls Royces and, you know, Audis that are very much about the let's make it as light and easy easy to live with as possible, whereas BMW always tries to dial in a little bit of engagement and, you know, funkiness to it. And I think that's what they've done here. They've got, you know, the, the limousine the limousine that you also want to drive as well as be driven in. I think they've really um, done a good job with achieving that here. How did you find the uh, performance? Performance was actually really good. The the seven forty i is surprisingly quick. Um, it can do a I think a sub zero sub zero sub six second sprint to one hundred kilometers an hour, which considering its size and weight is pretty impressive. And you get a sort of muted tone from the inline six turbocharged engine while you're doing it, which sounds quite nice. And then the i seven, oh my god, it, it's it, it claims like four point seven seconds to one hundred, but it definitely feels faster than that because you know EVs are so responsive off the line that as soon as you touch the pedal it shoots you towards the horizon and i think that you know most of the time av sort of taper off between 80 and 100 so that initial hit is what really hits what's really gets you and um you know for something that large and that heavy to accelerate that fast it's it's quite something to to experience it doesn't need to be a sub three second car like a tesla or you know a porsche taycan but you know anything i normally say to a lot of friends anything under seven seconds will feel quick anything under five will feel fast and anything quicker than that will just literally blow your socks off (laughs) so you know i can only imagine if you had to get away from somewhere in a bond film in one of these you'd be more than fine in either car (laughs) (laughs) you really don't need a lot of speed in a car like that you you almost want to be driven around slowly Exactly right. And and when you think about the kind of people that would buy that car here and also the fact that we don't have any speed limits above 110 or 130 in Australia, maybe on the Autobahn it makes it makes a, a, a difference if you want to get yeah. from like Germany to France really quick. But other than that, I can't imagine why you need something that drives like a sports car. At least, you know, it's, there's a little bit of ability there that's, um, that, that some buyers will probably be thankful for. 
Well, you can check out that review now where uh, Joe gave it an 8.6 car expert rating. Now, as we mentioned in the intro, you're also going to talk about the Range Rover Evoque PHEV as uh, listener Mike will be very excited to hear about. So what was your experience like, Joe? Yes, and Mike, you are getting the scoop because I haven't even written it yet. So um, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I picked up the, the Range Rover evoke p300e r dynamic hse plug-in hybrid so you know it's that's half the reason why it's taken me so long to write it because just writing the the headlines long enough um (laughs) so it's it it got introduced to the range last year and is the the new flagship for the range rover evoke range it's a it's a smidgen under one hundred and ten thousand dollars before on-road costs and it represents about a twenty thousand dollar premium over the equivalent p250 four-cylinder mild hybrid um, Spec-wise, it's pretty much the same as its siblings. Um, the main thing is that drivetrain, which combines a 1.5-litre um, three-cylinder turbo petrol engine with a um, lithium-ion battery pack and an electric motor. Um, so I think for me, it was it was one of my first real experiences with a Range Rover product. I haven't tested a lot of those cars um, ever. I've ridden in a couple, sat in a couple, but no, never actually spent time with one. So I really wanted to get a feel for what the hype is all about, just about Range Rovers in general, because obviously um, as a as a fan of British brands, I'm always um, drawn to Range Rover products, Land Rover, Aston Martin Jags, all that kind of thing. But also there's a real allure and a real, um, you know, brand awareness around Range Rover, particularly of the Evoque, because when it came out, it's been a very popular car for them globally and in Australia for quite some time. Um, the, the main thing about the Evoque plug-in hybrid is obviously that system. And I found that uh, when it worked the way that I thought it worked, it was quite nice. You know, the electric motor has a good pickup. Um, you can get about 55 Ks of range per charge. And given the claim is up to 62, that's that's not bad. Um, but I did find that sometimes the, the system would confuse me because it would suddenly turn on the petrol engine and keep it on for a while without me really understanding why because I'd perhaps had it in an EV mode and it would override me anyway. I can I assume this has something to do with the, the engine needing to do a full like heat cycle or something when it turns on for the first time in a while. And it did it a couple of times while I did it, um, which obviously will impact fuel consumption, but you can sort of work your way around that with regular use. So at the end of the week of testing, I'd probably done about 400 or 500 k's and I had maybe used half a tank and averaged about 4.4 litres per 100 k's in that time and there was a couple of nights that I had it that I didn't actually charge it. So it is relatively efficient. Um, I found that it felt quite heavy. It's a little over two tonnes in this spec which for a car that small is quite a lot of um, quite a lot of weight and given the Evoque doesn't have air suspension, I found that on the 20-inch wheels that were fitted to our tester, it could get a little bit firm over inner city roads so you know driving from uh, where i live in melbourne is um in the eastern suburbs and you sort of have to come into the in and around the city to get to the melbourne office which is in the docklands you do encounter quite a few different road surfaces there's potholes tram tracks you know broken surfaces uh, cracks all that kind of thing um and there were just a few times where i felt like it didn't quite iron it out the way that I would expect of a Range Rover. And this is an issue that I feel like a lot of premium brands with entry-level products experience is that, you know, you've got the brand and you've got some of the tech and the look and the feel, but sometimes the driving characteristics don't live up to what you would expect of a brand, particularly of, you know, Range Rover stature, which has built its name on offering, you know, go anywhere vehicles that are very very comfortable and luxurious that uh, that you know can do, you know you can take it to work you can take it out into the bush 
and whatever. So, you know, I, I have no doubt that the, the Evoke would be capable off-road for a small to medium SUV. It's been demonstrated, not necessarily, not by me in this case, but it's been demonstrated by a lot of other people. Um, and it's got all the features there to, to do so. I just, I'm not sure if the plug-in hybrid is the, the one to go for in that range. You know, normally I'm very quick to say, I love plug-in hybrids. I believe in the technology and, you know, what they mean um, for emi- the average consumer's emissions, if you if you get one and you and you know how to use it, but I feel like in this case it just felt a little bit too compromised, and the price gap is so steep. One hundred and ten thousand dollars for a car that can barely fit me in the back oh. is a lot of money. Uh, and there are some features that it's still got options. Like you still have to pay for a digital instrument cluster and a few other things in there that just seem ridiculous at that price point. It's meant to be a top spec car, um, but it drove beautifully. Like it's a very refined um, drivetrain. You know, we, we found find with some hybrids and plug-in hybrids that once you make that switch from electric to petrol power, there's like a, a ugly clunk and a lot of noise. And you know, this, it, especially when they're mounted in the transmission, you can sort of feel it going through the gears in the electric motor. Then once the petrol engine kicks in it can sort of pause for a moment and be confused whereas this one was very very seamless and i was quite impressed by it and having a three-cylinder engine instead of a four-cylinder engine but quite um insulated from the cabin meant you had this really nice meaty sort of thrummy tone to it whenever the petrol engine turned on um it also has an eight-speed auto instead of a nine-speed that you get in the petrol ones and i felt that on the freeway when it was in a hybrid setting or in, you know mainly drawing upon that combustion engine that it felt like it was a, missing a gear it was still revving at about the 2000 rpm mark which if you're going to be on the freeway at 100 or 110 it just feels like you know if it was able to drop the revs a little bit it'd be that little bit more efficient so there's a few things there where you know i know you're meant to you're meant to charge them every day so you know if you if you really want to maximize your efficiency you do that um but you know there were just certain things where i just felt were counterproductive or or didn't really help the cause one thing i will say as well is that the evoke plug-in hybrid is one of the few fevs that can actually do dc fast charging so it has a, a ccs port on it instead of just a normal type two and can charge at a rate of thing up to 35 kilowatts so i managed to get it from like zero to 80 percent charge within half an hour at a, at, a, at a public fast charger which is pretty good um, and yeah, I found that the range was fairly achievable. 55 case is pretty standard these days. We're, we're starting to see some cars move to that 70, 80, 90 kilometer barrier. Um, but, you know, I think for me personally, if I was shopping at that price point for a premium electrified SUV, I'd probably be looking at something like a Volvo XC60 recharge because that car is just as comfy, looks just as good, has more space. And um, I think the drive system is a little bit better in that one. So, yeah, it's, it was an interesting interesting experience. The car looked good though, white with black stuff and it had the the wool textile interior, which was really cool. I'd never really um, experienced a Range Rover with those. So um, I am somebody that actually prefers like an Alcantara or a softer fabric seat as opposed to leather because I think, A, it looks cooler and they're a little bit more comfortable and better for Australian summers. Um, but yeah, I, I'm happy to answer any further questions you guys might have. I know I've waffled on a little bit, but um, yeah, there's quite a lot to cover in that car. <laughs> <laughs> I have no questions because I can't think of a car I'm less interested in. Um, <laughs> the, Love the your honesty. Of, the lack of care I have for this car I, is just, no, look, I mean, the, the Range Rover Evoque is, it's a product that has definitely carved out a niche in the market for itself and it looks great. Um, but you sort of touched on it all, Wongi. I mean, the plug-in hybrid, I just don't see where it is a compelling part of that range. I just don't see it, I think. Plug-in hybrid 
can occasionally make sense in certain types of vehicles. But for me, an electric Evoque would be awesome. The petrol Evoque is a great looking thing. The FEV, too expensive, not enough range, not enough equipment. I just don't think it stacks up as a product uh, that really screams out by me. There are other Evoked and other Range Rovers that I think are fantastic, but this one just doesn't really feel like much of a winner to me, I have to say. <laughs> clearly, clearly, we're, clearly we're talking to the wrong mic here. Because <laughs> it's just so interested in it at all. <laughs> I know I sound grumpy and I just think plug-in hybrids are so contingent on how you go about running them and you've got to be so diligent about charging them. And when you look at the price of this, I just don't see it stacking up. I don't see it having huge performance upsides, refinement upsides, usability upsides. Yeah, for me, it just isn't one of those vehicles that makes a whole lot of sense. Joe, you mentioned that it's probably not the pick of the Evoque range. So what do you think is? Uh, it's it's hard. I feel like a lot of the um, the Range Rover stuff makes the most sense in SE guys, which is the mid spec trim, and then you sort of give it a few options to round it out. Because the fact that you're still optioning some luxury items in HSE spec just really boggles my mind. Like this is a small car, you know, it's barely bigger than a Mazda CX five, and you can buy two CX five Acaras for this money um, with probably more spec off the base level. Mm-hmm. So you know, not to not to say that a Range Rover doesn't have its its it's strong points, but you know, just the value just really throws it out the window in, in this particular spec. And the, the fact that the plug-in hybrid is not only available in that top spec drivetrain means that you sort of have to then go to the mild hybrids, which are fine as far as I know. But, you know, the it's starting to look a little bit old now too. The, the Evoke's been around for a little bit in this generation. So here's to hoping we start seeing um, updates from the big Range Rover and the new Range Rover Sport start filtering into the lower lower models because there's, there's quite a good – lot of stuff going on there um but yeah i think if you're if you're looking at an evoke probably go for one of the lower grades and and put in a couple of options that are desirable to you um and choose a cool color we need more yes. cool colors <laughs> well keep your eye on carexpert.com.au for that full review okay you recently had a sit down with the volvo ceo jim rowan what sort of things did you chat about Yeah, so Jim Rowan is a really interesting guy. He uh, was the CEO of Dyson uh, for quite some time, so the famous maker of chic vacuum cleaners and things like that, sort of the apple of the the household (laughs) appliance world is Dyson, Um, and he was an executive at BlackBerry before that as well, although I think that might have been after the iPhone completely destroyed BlackBerry's main business model, so don't hold that against him. But he's a Scotsman. He's been in the role for just under a year now. Um, And he's entrusted with basically seeing through the recent Volvo IPO and taking it out to its uh, mission to be uh, completely electrified or fully electric, I should say, by 2030 in 2026 in Australia. Um, So he was out visiting, as he put it, the extremities of his business. So he wanted to get his head around all of the regions that are very, very long way away from uh, Gothenburg, just to kind of understand as this company transitions, what are the changes it has to make contingent on region. It was very generous with his time. We got about 90 minutes to sit down with him and it's quite uncommon for people of this level in the car business to come to us in Australia. Usually we have to go to them at things like motor shows or on Zoom calls. So very unusual, very rare opportunity with a very highly credentialed guy. And we talked about the big picture stuff. We didn't waste his time talking about the Australian market. We talked about the big picture things and vehicle autonomy and share valuation and market caps and electrification and all these major touch points that we thought we'd you know, 
best benefit, uh, his insights would best benefit us. So, but it was a fantastic opportunity. I'm really keen to hear what he said about uh, vehicle autonomy, Marco. Yeah, so obviously Volvo is probably most renowned for its safety credentials, right? That's that's what it, what it's all about. And historically, that was mostly about passive safety. It invented the three-point seatbelt. was obviously very early to embrace airbags and ABS and all that sort of stuff. But we kind of take all that for granted now. And it's all about driver assist and ADAS and ultimately heading towards, you know, autonomy and autopilot and things like that. And what he said was quite interesting. So the first thing to take away is that he thinks full autonomous cars are, quote, a long way off. And more importantly, people know it. So at the moment, uh, the, 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 I guess this, the, the sort of overarching way that we classify driverless vehicles is to use various levels, level zero through to levels five. Level zero being no autonomy, level five being to full autonomy. And then there's grades in between that determine how effective the different driver assist systems are. His quote was uh, that it's an absolute nonsense, and that's 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 to take that's that's his uh, that's his word for it. Nonsense. It's either hands on or it's hands off. There is no in between. Stop talking about these increments of autonomy. You either have your hands on the wheel or you don't. End of story. And I thought that was quite pithy. It was a way to really cut through. Um, quote: This big method. There's five different levels of autonomy. Is nonsense in my opinion. You've got two levels of autonomy, he said. Now, the other part of the equation was talking about it's one thing to make a car drive itself on a test track or a geofenced public road where there's plenty of V2X happening, there's great connectivity. In terms of, you know, LIDARs and radars and sensors and computational abilities, we're already there. The problem is when you get it into the real world, there's too many variables for full autonomy to be as achievable as the likes of Elon Musk uh, have made it to be. So this is his quote, um, you're going to have computational power, you're going to have the software to do it, and maybe it starts off on a highway in certain areas, probably California, designated lanes on the highway, designated routes from the airport to downtown. Um, but driving inside a city where there are schools and roadworks, where there's a lot of change every day, I think that's a long, long way off, end quote. The natural feeder effect of that is, well, companies like Tesla, when they are trying to pump up their market caps, keep talking about driverless vehicles being just around the corner. Now, Mr. Rowan thinks that people are starting to see through that and you're not going to get the share multipliers that you were by claiming all these crazy ideas that your cars are going to drive themselves by the middle of the decade. Quote, uh, I think people have started to realise uh, and the context being that full AD is years off. And that's why it's no longer driving share value because the markets have realised it as well and the investors have realised it. So you don't get a multiple on your stock any longer if you say, I've got full AD, like you might have, but the legislation is not going to allow it. So we're not going to give you a premium on your stock because you've got that, end quote, which is really interesting because ultimately this is what these big tech companies and car companies are all about is their share price and their market value. And if he thinks that autonomy isn't the sexy subject that it once was, that carries a lot of weight considering who Volvo is. So I thought that was a really, really interesting takeaway. Wow, awesome. Um, what other interesting points did he, did he come away with? Yeah, so he touched on some of the big topic issues. One was uh, moving towards a different retail structure. He kept talking about how he thought it was incredibly strange, and that's a quote, that car companies don't have much of a connection with the people that buy their products. Traditionally, car brands would wholesale their models into franchise dealers who would then sell the cars to their clients, meaning that the dealer businesses are the ones that are actually talking to car buyers. He cannot get his head around that. As he says, companies like Apple, they sell direct. Tesla also sells direct, as does Polestar, on which Mr. Rowan sits on the board. So 
clearly hinting towards Volvo steadily moving towards what we know as the agency model or the direct-to-consumer model and moving away from franchise dealers. So that was quite interesting. He also spoke about how important it was to not be left behind. So he had some really snappy quotes on companies that aren't investing in EVs now. Um, The big issue, he says, is if you wait for the inflection point before you make the investment, it's too late. There's a lot of companies saying, I'll wait until electrification becomes fully mainstream and I'll invest. And you know what, buddy? You've just lost another market. It doesn't work like that. End quote. Very Scottish way to put it. Um, (laughs) So I thought that was quite interesting. And I think that's a real kind of um, take notice kind of message to the likes of Toyota, who keep saying, we'll invest in EVs when the market's ready, when people want them. What Jim is saying is, no, 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 if you are not investing now, you will never be a leader and you're going to have to buy the IP from others who own it and it's going to cost you money and you're going to be behind. Um, So that was incredibly interesting as well. He also spoke about the age-old question around price parity between electric and combustion vehicles. He said the key is as infrastructure on EVs improves, there's going to be less need to have really big battery packs of like 100 kilowatt hours. And that's what drives up the price of EVs. So in the future, when we've got charges that are much more readily available and efficiency is improved thanks to things like, you know, silicon carbide chips and and other, other innovations, better motors, you're going to see the need for big batteries to decline, which is obviously going to pull down prices. And so he's thinking that price parity for Volvo between ICE and EV is about 2025. And that, he says, is not because he's going to jack up the prices of the petrol cars. It's just the natural decrease of the cost of EVs by way of smaller batteries. So another interesting point. Um, Wongi, I see you've got your hand up there. I know you're keen to ask something. What's on your mind? Um, well, I was just wondering whether there was any sort of mention of what Australia's role is in that whole strategy, given that the local arm is actually taking a, a quicker approach to going all electric, which is quite different to how a lot of the other brands are working globally. Yeah, so Jim quite uh, astutely uh, put the onus on the head of Volvo Australia, who was also in the room when that question was asked. Because uh, as you say, it's, it's a very obvious question to ask. And I think Jim put the onus back on Volvo Australia to say, well, you're, you're the guys that made the claim. It's going to be up to you to hit it now. Um, so that was sort of his response. It was quite measured. I mean, he has 200 plus countries in mind and doesn't really get involved in just one country at a time. But the company is definitely um, very, very uh, sure that its product rollout will suit Australia's demands by 2026. It's very big on not focusing on being in every single market segment. It's quite happy to only really have three or four or five different product lines. But the way that it says, it's only talking to a small sliver of the market anyway. That sliver of the market that it talks to really want to embrace EVs. These are not, you know, Toyota Land Cruiser buyers. Um, These are quite progressive environmentally minded people anyhow. So that company is not at all concerned about getting there in time. And I think it's it's made it such a big talking point now that it couldn't really back away even if it wanted to. Hmm. Did you mention anything about the, the future of Volvo ICE cars, Mark? Yeah, so Volvo, the big thing that it's done recently is, so Volvo is obviously owned by China's Geely, um, which has signed a joint venture with the Renault Group, Um, to make a separate company focused purely on ICE, on internal combustion engines. And that will be shared across the Nissan-Renault alliance. It will be shared into all the Geely products, including Volvo's Lincoln Co's and you name it. So basically Volvo itself is siphoning away all internal combustion development, but it will continue to put those engines 
in this new company into its vehicles until 2030, at which point it will obviously move away from it entirely. So there is a future there, but Volvo itself is really not bothering to invest any money at all in ICE now. It's all part of this new separate company. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that now as as brands that have IPO'd want to define themselves as electric only. They're going to maybe source their internal combustion stuff from elsewhere, but not get their hands dirty with it themselves. Mm. Sounded like a very interesting chat indeed. Thanks for that wrap up. Pleasure. Well, that's a wrap for this week's podcast. Uh, what cars have we got coming up in the garage next week, J-Wo? Uh, well, we've got the new BMW X1 S-Drive 18i coming in Melbourne as well as the Hyundai Santa Fe Elite Hybrid. Um, so we've got two versions of cars that we've recently had on launches but trying to play around with specs. I'm in the process of booking our team a couple more cars too, so stay tuned for some surprises. Um, in Sydney, we've got Matt Campbell driving the new Volkswagen Tiguan All Space Monochrome Edition um, as well as the Suzuki Jimny uh, and also the Nissan Qashqai SEL. He gets through quite a few cars. Wow. <laughs> We've also got a, a Peugeot 308 GT Premium in Brisbane, which according to the calendar, Alpers will be driving. So I'm really interested to hear his thoughts on that. Nice. And we've got a few events and launches also, Moco. Yeah, we do. There's a bit coming up. So we've got uh, Scott at the moment is with uh, Great Wall Motor doing uh, a new energy vehicle day. So there's a hell of a lot coming out of that brand from the Aura EVs to the tank hybrid 4x4s and many other things in between. So we're going to get a ton of news out of that. We've also got a Toyota event at the end of this month where the company is going to talk about its wider electrification plans moving forward. Um, And we've also got uh, Albors currently uh, over in Europe driving the Ineos Grenadier, uh, the new 4x4 from the startup brand um, run by the richest man in the UK, uh, so Jim Ratcliffe. So some interesting launches on the way. Fantastic. Well, thank you once again this week, guys. It's always been fun. Mike Costello and James Wong, thank you. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, guys.